0: Welcome to Channel
1: Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hey, Channel Pros, welcome to episode 27 of the Channel Journeys podcast, sponsored by Channel Journeys Consulting. I am Rob Spee, your host and founder of Channel Journeys, where I am helping SaaS companies accelerate growth and create powerful partner ecosystems. Channel marketing plays a huge role in the success of any channel program. Get it right, and you've got a happy ecosystem of the right partners who are engaged in driving new business. Get it wrong, and well, you can waste millions of dollars without any real return, and I've seen it happen. We have an awesome episode today with someone who lives and breathes channel marketing, Peter Thomas. Peter is the founder and CEO of Averitech, a company that he founded and launched 18 years ago. It has become a leader in through-channel marketing automation. And some really big news, just after I recorded this episode with Peter, Averitech announced that they have been acquired by E2Open, and they're going to make... Averitech, a strategic component of their digital supply chain management offerings. So big congratulations to Peter and team. That is pretty awesome. Peter is also the author of an excellent book on channel marketing called Marketing Multiply that he co-wrote with his partner, Mike Moore. Peter has gained tons of experience in 2 partner and through partner marketing. Helping vendors like SAP, RSA, and Splunk drive greater demand and has super valuable insights that he shares in this podcast. So let's get started with Peter Thomas, his thoughts on the long tail and five steps to maximizing the return on your channel marketing investment. Here we go. Peter Thomas, good morning. Welcome to Channel Journeys. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Rob. Well, it's great to have you on. And I know we just saw each other last week out at the Channel Focus event. Great catching up with you there. Yeah, absolutely. So you have got a lot of titles, founder, CEO, you're an author, channel marketing, extraordinaire expert, I would say, and really eager to dive into that topic of channel marketing with you perhaps just to kick things off, you can give us a brief overview of Averitech and what you're doing there. You guys have got a a pretty well-established channel digital marketing platform. Sure.
0: Yeah, thank you. So Averitech is a through-channel marketing automation platform company. So we help brands um, like SAP and RSA enable these large, diverse ecosystems of channel partners and help them drive demand. So when you think about a customer like SAP for example they have 17,000 channel partners it's hard to manage them on a one to one basis and give them the content they need and the support they need to drive demand and you know generate leads for the business and so they use a platform like Averitech to create and publish content and then the partners come in and consume that on a self-service basis and then execute it to their own audience and so you can think of that in terms of you know, landing pages social media events email marketing, print, you know, all, all different kinds of demand generation material. Uh, and we also do full service marketing as well. We have a marketplace in the platform that allows us to match make channel partners with qualified agencies to execute on their behalf. So if a partner needed trade show help, or they wanted to run a telemarketing campaign, you know, we allow them to find an agency in the marketplace, use their MDF to pay for that, and then the agency goes off and executes and drive leads. So it's pretty cool. We've been doing this for a long time and super proud of the customers we've, we, we work with.
1: Excellent. So before we dive into channel marketing, I want to do a deep dive into that topic. I'm going to start with a, a lightning round for you. Two questions. First, what's the biggest trend you see taking place in the channel?
0: I think channel chiefs, the number one thing on their mind is how do I get predictable ROI on my channel investment.
1: That is definitely on top of mind on many channel chiefs. I know back in many roles that I've had as channel chief, even as a channel marketer, that was a huge challenge for me. What is one thing you'd like to see change in the channel?
0: I think, well, I guess I think that the one thing I'd like to see change in the channel is a more democratic view of channels itself. So instead of focusing on the top 1%, 2% or 3% of partners, the ones that you know predictably drive revenue or, or or really, really large. I think that a more democratic approach to look at the long tail of the channel, which is typically suboptimal, would yield better results ultimately for the brands. I think that they you think of these really large, I mean even Disty Vars like CDW, SHI, they have a disproportionate amount of power over the brands. And so the brands throw money at them and they throw resources at them and they I mean they pay to walk the floor even. And they do that I think at the detriment of the rest of their channel partners who from a behavior standpoint want they have a willingness and they want to partner with them they they want to do more with them they want to do marketing with them they just lack the capability to do so and so I think the brands tend to not focus on them as much because they're you know they don't make as big of an impact to the bottom line but they could and they should
1: yeah, the long tail, that came up several times in conversation and presentations out at Channel Focus last week, and there are obviously a lot of different opinions about the long tail, and so from the extreme of, oh, just cut them off, to to mm-hmm. more of what you're saying is, no, let's be more democratic, let's get more from them. And I'm wondering, what do you think? is It's almost a chicken and an egg, because the way you design your partner program can really skew your attention towards just the top couple big partners.
0: I think it's also... Natural. So I I do agree with you. I I hear people say, you know, we should thin the herd quite a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Because they say, Hey, look, you know, we've had these partners that have been on a long time. Even if they're only doing a couple of deals a year, they're still a bit of a drag to the program. Let's just get rid of them. And then I hear other people say we should invest in them. I think it's natural that it ultimately that it turns out this way. It's hard to stay focused on partners that aren't producing. It's easier to focus on partners that do produce. And most of the people that are running a channel today were not there when their company decided to go into the channel. But when they decided to go into the channel, they were recruiting every single partner that they could find. Anybody that would say, yes, I'd love to partner with you, They would take the small guy. They would take the big guy. They would take anybody. Right. But now they are much more successful let's say these brands are more successful and they forget what it's like to have to make an investment in a smaller per- partner who doesn't produce as much so they don't you know they say well we're just going to focus all our our effort on the platinums or or whoever they are we're going to give them all the money we're going to give them all the love we're going to give them all the account management and predictably those are the only partners that continue to produce 90% of the revenue so I think that, you know, broadening the view would, you know, what it, who, who, should be, who sh- we should be partnering with and investing with is something that, that would benefit most brands.
1: Yeah, I think so too, Peter. I think there is a, a period where you do have to do a bit of culling because like you said, you start off accepting everyone into the program. And then you find some that just weren't the right fit and it's not good for you or the partner to continue the relationship. But the smaller ones who want to continue, who want to invest, who are interested, those are the guys that have great potential and you do want a program and tools and, and processes and, and automation to take care of those guys and help them succeed.
0: So the question then becomes, well, how do you figure out who they are? How do you figure out? Which, so, so let's say we have a partner who doesn't produce as much as we think they should or could, but we're not sure. You know, they might look like another partner who we might try to invest in and then ultimately won't produce anything. So what we recommend is, you know, let's look at the behaviors, maybe not transactional activity, but let's look at the behavior. How engaged are they with your partner program messaging? So when you do a two partner marketing campaign, you know, you tell them about some great program that you're launching. Do they engage? Do they do they open the email? Do they click the link? Do they raise their hand and say, I want to learn more? Do they ever ask you for marketing support? You know, are they demonstrating the willingness to partner with you? Because you have to look at the transaction. A successful transaction is the end. But there's a whole bunch of steps that go into that before that lead to that successful transaction. So if they're willing to take some of the steps that lead toward a successful outcome, you should double down on them. And help them take those steps. And if they don't know what the steps are, but they're willing to do it, you should lay out like, think of it like a breadcrumb trail. You should lay that out so that, you know, so that they know how to get to the finish line. You know, so the first thing we do is we take a training. And the second thing we do is we launch a marketing campaign and whatever those things might be that lead to that outcome. That's really what you're trying to do is build a nurture path. Toward a successful transaction.
1: Yeah, I I like Peter how you mentioned the behaviors and things that you can look for, like like opening emails or other things. And some of that can even be automated, so you can surface to the top those ones that are engaging.
0: Right. So then you you create segments out of them, right? You you create segments of the the lifestyle partners, you know, who are like maybe going to recommend you if their customer asks, but you know, ultimately they're just looking for the margin. Or partners that really want to grow with you, partners who really want to participate in your program and really, you know, want to make your brand a priority in their in their business.
1: So yeah, I, I think that segmenting is is hugely important. Getting that commitment. One of the things that I did was drive a requirement of building out a business plan. And if you aren't going to take the time to build a joint business plan with our channel account managers, then it's looking like you don't really have that commitment to building that partnership.
0: I have a customer that. Makes that a requirement to participate in their program. It's just that simple. You will do it or you won't. You'll be you'll be culled from the the program, which is pretty hardcore. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and then of course the natural objection is, oh man, building a business plan is hard. You know, like it takes a long time. I don't know, things change. You know, there's all this friction yeah. in the process. Which again, I don't want to turn this into a pitch session, but we do offer marketing planning inside of our platform that allows partners and channel managers to work together to build that plan out in terms from a marketing standpoint. You know, and then throughout the year, they can review plan to performance, right? Like how, you know, we we said we were going to do this. This is what we actually did. So there there are ways to eliminate that friction.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So in my previous experiences as channel chief and even running channel marketing, I've had a lot of challenges. It's picking the right campaigns, you know, finding the right marketing activities that are appropriate for different partners and trying to get partners to engage in the, the marketing campaigns in a box that we would be developing and figuring out what is our return on investment and how do we drive that up. You and I had chatted before this call, and you, you mentioned that you had five steps to maximizing your channel marketing return on investment. And I, I think that'd be a great topic to take our, our listeners through if we can, can walk through that. Sure.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, the first step is to use a data-driven approach to channel planning. What we mean by that is you know, being able to see the transaction in its entirety from the point where the product is, you know, is is made by you and goes to the distributor, goes to the channel partner and ultimately ends up in the customer's lap in, on their desktop. You know, what does that entire lifecycle look like? Which partners are moving products? Which partners are not moving products? How do you see the the kind of the the entire transaction, the entire route to market in its entirety? When you have that data, what it's going to allow you to do is see which channel routes are the most successful. So which ones are growing, which ones are shrinking and that kind of thing.
1: And are you talking, Peter, from a data perspective of tracking a lead to an opportunity to a closed deal?
0: Well, there's absolutely that lead absolutely lead deal reg. Op close deal, absolutely. But I guess I also mean transactional data itself, like channel data, typical channel data management, right? The the products that are actually being moved by the partners. Mm-hmm. So collecting all that up and putting it into you know C- your CRM and seeing that in a dashboard, you know, that shows you the actual behavior, the end of the line, right? The end of the line for all of this is which partners are gonna sell stuff. That's really the end result is a successful transaction. So if we start from that point and work backward, we then go, okay, well, what are the steps or the behaviors that happened that created that successful outcome? So that data helps you identify the different types of partners you have. Then you incorporate their actual behavior, their marketing behavior, their transactional data, their competencies, their propensity to market or sell or whatever. And then you create those segments. So instead of looking at it like, you know, gold, whatever, silver, gold, platinum, Mm -hmm. Like most people do and say, oh, we just got three tiers. And it's based on how much you do, how much you run through, you know, the the revenue run rate. Instead of looking at it like that, I think that's not a very helpful way to evaluate your your partners. A better way to evaluate your partners is to build cohort groups, to say, okay, here are my growth partners, here are my lifestyle partners, here are my resellers, here are my services partners, here are partners with sales and marketing capability, here are partners without right. So you kind of have them in these different buckets. But once you've segmented them, you then can align your incentives to them. So there are certain high value activities that, you know, they're important to your brand, you know, certain products you want to push, you know, maybe you're doing a rebrand, a certain story you want to tell, you then align the activities to the partners that you know that can support those activities. In other words, don't align an incentive to the transaction. They're already getting paid a commission. That's their incentive you know, align the incentive to the activities that lead to the transaction, if that makes sense.
1: You're speaking of incentives like MDF?
0: Yeah. MDF, rebates, spiffs, any kind of promotion, right? I just sort of lump it all into mm-hmm. one bucket instead of just saying, oh, <laughs> I don't know, it's contra revenue, right? You know, you, you sell a certain amount and you get a certain amount. You sell a certain amount, you get a certain amount. And that's it. I mean, that doesn't, that's not very imaginative, right? It's more imaginative to say, you know, we have this core business objective this quarter. And we want you to, you know, you're the type of partner that has the capability to support that type of objective. So we're going to give you some money to do that. That's what you get from having good data. So the
1: first step is taking that data-driven approach. And from there, you're looking at which partners are selling, what type of products, where are they selling, following that that journey, and what, what's helping to make them successful, the types of campaigns that they're, they're running, that type of thing. Sure. Yeah.
0: And so you align. So that's the second step is to have these segment your partners and then align incentives accordingly.
1: Okay. And can you give an example? Like you mentioned a lifestyle partner versus a growth partner. How might those incentives differ between those two types of partners? So,
0: I mean, for me, a lifestyle partner, I wouldn't give them anything if it's up to me. I would really only, because again, they're recommending your brand because their customer asked that, you know, they they might sell 20 different lines and 10 of them are competitive with you Mm -hmm. and Oh, sure. I'll do that, you know, because it was, it was asked for, but ultimately that's not really the one that they're pushing for you. You're not a big part of their wallet, if if that makes sense. So I, I would really only invest in the growth partners and the types of activities. I mean, if you think of kind of types of activities you might do, you might plan an event with a partner. Mm-hmm. You might, you might execute a marketing campaign with, you know, landing page, email, give them, you know, give their audience some kind of valuable piece of content that you've uh, created. You know, you, you might ask them to syndicate your, you know, some web content or something like that on their mm-hmm. website. Right. And if they do those things, then they get some kind of reward. Yeah. For that. And it can even be a non monetary award. I mean, we see that a lot actually of working really well. I don't just mean give them money because I think money is easy. I think ultimately what partners really value are experiences. So I see some brands do things like, you know, breakfast with the CEO mm-hmm. at the next conference. He's going to have breakfast anyway. So you might as well sit a partner next right. to him. Right. But partners will compete with that. They will compete for that prize because that's significant to them. That's an experience that is really meaningful to them. So there are, there are lots of things you can do that have either a low monetary or non monetary uh, value. I mean, Starbucks cards, you know, partners will do a lot for a $5 Starbucks card.
1: Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> the,
0: it's amazing. They the really will a free coffee. Right. So I think the third thing, the third thing, and this is, I think one of the most critical and it's a little bit controversial even. And I know that because I brought it up in a workshop at Channel Focus last week and everybody was like, what? I was like, oh, okay. Well, this is my perspective. So it is to offer packaged marketing services and either minimize or eliminate proposal-based
1: MDF entirely. So let's describe that. proposal base. that's where a partner has an idea. Hey, I want to invite my customers to a BMW drive-in. That's And, right. and I'm going to suggest it to the vendor and try to convince the vendor to, to fund it. That's right. Why is that a bad idea?
0: Well, because on the first, the first reason is because partners don't know how to plan marketing activities, typically. And I'm generalizing here, but oftentimes right. they don't. Second, they, there's no guarantee of an ROI. There's no predictable outcome. I guarantee what's going to happen is the people that go that attend the BMW drive event are going to have a really great time. I don't guarantee they're ever going to buy anything. And I think that's the same thing with the luxury box, you know. I wanna I wanna take my customers,
1: a few customers to the Yankees. But those are so much fun.
0: They are. They're really fun. And you know, when you show up to one of those, when you show up to one of those, you know what you see? You see a lot of customers, but you also see a lot of people that work for the partner. So all the employees get to go to a free Yankees. Well, game yeah, too, they love it. Right. So of course. So it's great. So I look at those things as being almost entirely a colossal waste of money. So what's the alternative? The alternative is to do to offer an array of packaged services. So we have a telemarketing package and we have an event package and we have a trade show package and we have a content blog content package and a social media package. Let's just pick five things. And there each of them are executed by an agency that is validated and vetted, and most importantly, under SLA with the brand. So the agency doesn't get paid unless the outcome is what we all agree the outcome should be. So the agency has a, uh, let's just say, a, a strong incentive to do a really good job. So the predictability is the key here. We get a predictable outcome. We get predictable ROI. We also know it's brand focused. The message is very focused. And, and it's focused. It's really, it's all about selling the brand that's going to fund it, not show up at a luxury box. And oh, by the way, you show up and the partner's offering a couple of different things, right? And you know right. what I'm saying? It's, a, it's just very different, right? And I think the, the final piece is accountability. So there's you have a small number of pre-screened mm-hmm. vendors and that is the key to managing this. You're not funding Bob's event service here on in one state and then, you know, a telemarketing vendor you've never heard of that somebody found on Google in another part of the world. You know, it's it's just much more managed. And if you offer a small number of choices, that should be enough to handle pretty much whatever a partner's going to come up with. Question. Especially if you pick vendors that are, you know, diverse enough in their office. So you
1: have a small number of offerings, but then how do you treat the customization that's required? And it seems more and more, you know, the big talk channel focus, and we've been talking about this for a while is the the hyper specialization of partners that are getting very micro niche vertical focused, for example. And so you may have a couple packaged offerings, but you still need to customize those into the that partner's value prop, don't you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the offering, I take an offering like original content, like an agency that that offers, you know, content creation. So they're doing blogs and ebooks and white papers and translation and stuff like that. So they're still going to do all that under the con- context of the the partner's unique value prop and messaging framework. It's just the difference is, is it's an agency that we know we can rely on that knows how to partner and knows how to execute this particular activity. So I'm not suggesting necessarily that the Audience is already defined and that the message itself is already defined. I'm, I'm suggesting that the activity itself is defined and we're, we the brand are saying these are the types of activities that we want to fund because we know that they create predictable ROI. In other words, we do not do luxury boxes and we do not do BMW drive events because we've tried those things and we know that we don't get any deals out of them.
1: So, your package might include a social media campaign, maybe a a co hosted webinar. Sure. You have a couple of different ways of reaching your prospects at different stages of their journey.
0: Sure. And I think on that note, it's important to offer a, a diversity of services and also regionally. So, you would not have an agency in the US execute a Campaign, a marketing campaign for a Brazilian partner. It's just the selling culture is different. You know, the way they engage is different. So, you want to have regional agencies. You want to have that part figured out. And, and I think I'd also point out that it doesn't have to just be marketing support. Partners appreciate business 101 type stuff too, depending upon the type of partner that it is. We're talking mm-hmm. about that long tail. They actually They actually appreciate, you know, other types of classes and things that help them run their business more effectively as well as, you know, on behalf of marketing
1: too. Yeah, there's- So that's the-, the There are go a ahead, variety sorry. of services other than just the, the standard marketing services is what you're saying. Enablement right. services. Right.
0: So the fourth key to this is to be fun and interesting, which I know sounds really like, okay, go ahead and be fun, right? That's, you know. But the thing is, if you take a hard look in the mirror and say, is our per- partner program or our programs interesting to partners? Oftentimes you're going to say, yeah, kind of not really. So then you wonder, why would they engage? Why would a partner engage? For the money? I mean, that, that's what you just started this conversation with was, you know, I know as a channel chief, it was hard to keep my partners interested in the campaigns that we would do and stuff right. like that. Right. And every channel chief struggles with that. But if they really look at it, it's like, is it fun? You know, is it interesting for a partner? Is there something for them to, you know, really latch onto? And so some of the keys to that are recognizing partners rewarding them, and mm-hmm. then repeating that. So a good example is bring that partner on the stage in front of other partners. You know, bring that model partner and say, this is the partner of the quarter of the year of the whatever. And you will see there's a, a FOMO, a fear of missing yeah. out factor, right? So partners look at that and say, hey, I'm just as good as that guy. How come I can't be up on stage with him, right? So, there's a competitiveness that, that, that goes on there. I think you also want to look for one-off successes that are happening that certain partners are coming up with. So you don't have all the good ideas. You understand that the brand doesn't come up with every amazing idea. So look at other programs that certain partners are running that you can take and repeat for other partners. Right? You know, so you of culling from the field there. But I think most importantly, set the expectation with your partners that you're going to shuffle the deck every single quarter. So what does that mean? Consider creating like a, a season. So think about this like season one, season two, season three, season four, right? You
1: know, the Netflix model?
0: Exactly. Something like that. And so season one might be focused on cross-sell. Season two is upsell. Season three is new buying accounts. And so you know, there are going to be a different set of objectives for partners and a different set of tactics that you want them to engage in with you to support those initiatives. But what you're doing is you're helping partners, you're basically getting them to avoid the sense of entitlement they have about your benefits. See, so if, if you say at the end of this quarter, the partner that, you know, that brings in the most, whatever, upsold opportunities or whatever gets this, you know, what you're doing is you're saying, okay, it's not the same every quarter. It's different every quarter. I have a different objective and it's a different... Well, year.
1: yeah, that would that would break the boredom, <laughs> which, which you get when you have the same campaigns in a box up for the two years running which no one wants to engage yep. in anymore. Plus I think it it creates a sense of hey, this is only going to be available for a limited time. I better take action because this it won't be around next quarter.
0: We want them thinking, we want the partner thinking, how can I take my unfair share yeah. <laughs> this quarter? And the partners and the partners that do that, those are the ones that are put on the main stage mm-hmm. of the partner conference. Those are your heroes. So, I think that you know, I have a customer who's doing a Game of Thrones theme, or they were up in you know, yeah. the last six weeks. They were doing a Game of Thrones, you know, campus. so they're, you know, they're thinking about it in terms of pop culture and, you know, that's very on brand for them, right? And so I think the reality is the, the way you go, okay, well, how do I come up with a creative idea, you know, because it's easy to say, it's harder to do. Think about programs that you were involved with at a, on an individual level, like maybe as an employee, as a customer of another company, mm-hmm. you just mentioned Netflix. Think about ways you interact, rip off and duplicate, right? Rip off and duplicate because those are great ideas and they can be applied to your partner program. And, you know, I know that a lot of us are selling software and technical stuff, but it doesn't have to be boring. It doesn't. It can be fun. You can be fun too.
1: Yeah. And I think that goes a long way, Peter, to what you mentioned earlier, the partner experience. And that was another theme at the show. We talk a lot about customer experience, but partner experience is just as important and making it fun and it making it fun yeah, and interesting absolutely. can can go a long ways towards creating a much better partner experience and make them want to work with you.
0: Well, so we all, every one of us subconsciously brings our consumer expectations yes. to work with us. We we're all carrying these iPhones around, you know, we have Netflix, we have Amazon. You know, it's all highly personalized for us. And then we get to work and we're dealing with more boring software, right? So, it's a very different, yeah, you know what I mean? So it's so there's a gap, right? And I think the opportunity is to really make it more consumery, if that's a word, to reinforce that experience that they're already sort of anticipating because the market, you know, the the bigger market, B2C market shapes that expectation.
1: So let's see, I've got four. Start with take the data as one, then segment your partners. That's two. Three is do package services instead of proposal based. Four is be fun and interesting. What's number five to, to maximize your channel marketing ROI?
0: Five is inspect what you expect. So this is where we kind of look back and audit the program that we're running. So here's the dirty secret. Anytime you are spending any money on any program like this for a partner, there will be some amount of fraud, some amount of abuse. So the partners will try to take advantage of you and your brand, whenever they can, and it's not because they're bad people. It's like a game, right? It's like, oh, well, hey, if you're going to give me money to help me build my business, then I'll take it, right? So you should look at these programs periodically, I say, you know, every six months, every three months, to re- you know review these. Look at it from the partner side. How could I take advantage of this? Look for exploits. Look at for ways that your program can be gamified. You know, try to figure out how could a partner take advantage of me here? I had a customer long time ago, we did a gamification program inside of their co-marketing platform. So, you know, partners would, if they executed a campaign, they would get a certain number of points. If they, if they co-branded a white paper, if they did, you know, whatever. It's like it's all these different activities. If they uploaded a logo, they would get a smaller number of points. So when they launched this, they noticed immediately I mean, there were partners who had never transacted, partners who hadn't, you know, or maybe they were, you know, onesies, twosies. And all of a sudden, they were the most active partners, you know, inside the platform. And they were, you know, here they're clicking a lot of things, they're executing a lot of campaigns. Mm-hmm. Wow, they're, it's really working, right? We're really getting it. And then we look at who they're executing the campaigns to, you know, you drill deep, right? You look at who they're executing them to. And you see that a lot of the audience are people that work for their own company, <laughs> right? So it's just little things like that that partners will do because you know if they're if you're basically saying hey if you do X I'll give you Y they're going to think about ways to get to that end yeah, result.
1: It's true, Peter. You know, so when I I've done a, a variety of things, and one of the things in my career I did was starting up a my own reseller business, and I was chatting with other partners to get advice and hear what they were doing. And one partner's advice was. Well' leverage that m d f and I won't name the partner or the vendor, but he was collecting about two hundred and fifty k in m d f that wasn't going to marketing it was just going to basically launching his business mm-hmm. in in a variety of different ways so yeah. there th- people can get very creative,
0: yeah, and i mean that's what happens i mean that's what happens when you that goes back to i guess point three about having packaged marketing services so you're not just you're not just saying here can i have some money mm-hmm. to do this event or whatever right it's you know we have somebody that's going to do the work for you i've heard stories about partners who they do a proposal based they do proposal based requests they get the money for the event that never occurred I've seen partners who have bought products on the gray market and then submitted rebate requests as if they had bought them from you know from distribution I mean, it's, you know, there's, there's just a lot of little ways partners can try to take advantage of it. So again, having good auditing and leveraging software, quite frankly, there is software that will detect fraud and will detect risk and will audit your channel. Again, uh, that's something that I think that brands should really be thinking about because I mean, I know, and I won't name the brand. I know a brand that last year audited their MDF program and they found $60 million in fraud. Wow. That's 60 million is that's larger than most people's entire MDF budget and that's their fraud just the fraud amount. So, you know, so I think that that's an area
1: that really needs focus. How do you not go too far though? You know, there's a lot of talk about you've got to be easy to work with. Otherwise partners are going to jump to another vendor and you don't want to make the program too onerous and partners complain, god, I've got to jump through all these mm-hmm. these hoops, you know, fill out all this paperwork, it takes me 6 months to get reimbursed. How do you keep mm-hmm. it so it's mm-hmm. easy to work with, but you still are minimizing any abuse of the program.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So I mean, if you go back to the, if you go back to the packaged marketing services, so, you know, to go back to that for a minute, what you were just talking about, there's like, well, it takes me six months, I got to fill all this paperwork. A lot mm-hmm. of that stuff is prior approval, it has to do with getting approval, it has to do with having to be the bank for the brand, you know, like having to float the vendor and maybe they don't have the cash to do that. So Going back to that point three about having packaged marketing services, if they're packaged, you already know what the outcome is. So there should be no prior approval. It should automatically be approved. And because that vendor is your vendor and they're bound by SLA and they don't get paid until they do a good job, you can pay them to do a good job once they upload the performance. So that handles two big objections right there. It gets rid of the partner filling out a lot of paperwork because they're not asking for you to approve Mm of anything. You've already just offered it to them. And it makes them not the bank, which honestly, like the the difference between a brand, the bank account of a brand and a typical partner is pretty significant. So, you know, putting a partner in that position to have to fund the activity and then wait 90 days for your finance department to cut a check is painful. And so they just go, you know, it's not worth it, right? But who loses there? You lose because they're not going to, first of all, they're going to work with another brand that makes it easier. That's number one. And number two, ultimately, you don't get the leads and you don't get the business,
1: yeah, I think you're spot on in both points there. When I look back, it was those um, proposal-based marketing activities that were taking so long to get reimbursed. That's, that's a huge issue. So you solve that with more package services. And then the, the other point you made, when a partner has to fund it up front, they tend not to leverage the MDF. It's just too much for them.
0: You know, the thing is most brands sit back and they go, gosh, I mean, it's free money why Won't they take it? And then they're like, you know, like 20% of the money is unspent, 30% of the money is unspent. And of course, we know what happens then. The CFO comes in at budget time and goes, You spent 30%, you know, you have 30% left over. I'm just going to take that and reclaim yeah. it for the business because obviously you're not using it. Right. So now your MDF budget shrinks. So it's one of those things like it's it's ponderous to think, Why wouldn't somebody just use this free money? But then when you look at everything they've got to go through to get it, mm-hmm. you're like, Yeah, yeah. they're Tight busy. Cash flow over everything else. It.
1: All right. Excellent. So those are five ways a vendor can increase their channel marketing ROI. How should they go about measuring that return on investment? Other than just, at the end of the day, it comes down to how much business did we do? Did we drive more business, right?
0: That's right, right? As the CEO of the company, I look at it and say, you know what, the one that really matters is revenue. Did they drive more revenue? But I think there are also many other leading indicators. That's the lagging indicator. The leading indicators are, so if you have a package marketing service, you know, you're not paying the agency until they've uploaded the list of leads, and then those leads go into your Salesforce. They go into the partner's CRM as well. Your channel managers see those. Now you're working them together. So how many of those convert to, to an op? You know, they get deal reg and convert to an op, and then how many of those get closed? And you can actually apply some standard metrics to this funnel. If if you say, okay, on average, the lead to op ratio for my direct team is. 20%, let's say. But a partner's not going to be as good at selling as our direct team. So maybe we'll make it fifteen percent and handicap it. Right. So you have these sort of different, you know, ratios you apply at different stages of the funnel. You can pretty much see if I spent, you know, X million dollars at the beginning of the year, you know, on co marketing activities with partners, I should see why at the end. You know, so it's it's one of those things I think you you want to track those leading indicators have it tied into Salesforce, have it tied into your, you know, be a part of your channel manager's flight plan. When they show up and talk with a partner, they're like, Hey, I see you're
1: working these ops from that activity we did together. Where are we at on them? Yeah. You know, I think one of the challenges too, in channel marketing, it seems like in many, many companies you visit, and that I've been in the channel marketing really seems to lag behind in so many different ways from the corporate marketing, you know, the using the latest tools, the latest analytics, all Mm -hmm. of this tracking. It seems like you're several years behind what the corporate marketers are doing. Is that a challenge that you see?
0: most definitely that I don't know if it's so much tooling because I mean there are companies like ours that you know bring you know really modern a really modern tool mm-hmm. set to to the partners and a b m tactics and intent and stuff like that into it. Part of it has to do with the sophistication of the partner from a marketing so like they just don't get it in a lot of ways, so it has to be very simple for them. It has to be very easy to use. I really think the bigger reason for that is because channel marketers and direct Mm -hmm. marketers just don't spend enough time together. Channel marketers should be, you know, you mentioned um, author, we wrote a book on channel marketing called Marketing Multiplied. And one of the things we talk about there is empathy, right? Empathy is the most important trait of any good channel marketer, understanding not only what a partner goes through, but what your brand marketers are going through. So, and also what your salespeople are going through, so we encourage them to go, you know, sit with a partner for a day, go sit with a direct marketer for a day, go sit with a, a channel sales person for a day, and see what it's like to walk in their shoes because it's going to inform, it's going to inform your job, you know, what you're doing on a daily basis so much better. So I think that the reason channel marketing lags is really because there just isn't enough sort of cross functional mm-hmm. training going on there right because the direct marketers are oftentimes doing things yes. that are a bit more on the edge like you said okay and so then a channel marketer a good channel marketer will look at that and say how can i take mm-hmm. that and pattern it out in the channel how can i make that happen because ultimately the leverage effect and the multiplier effect of the yeah. partners doing that would be tremendous right they have this huge tool at their disposal but i just think that they're busy and they they don't spend enough time you, you know with with the folks where you know where they could get those great ideas
1: Yeah. No, good point. And illness isn't just on channel marketing. It's the channel marketer who needs to be curious and empathetic and and dive in and understand what corporate's doing and how to leverage that.
0: How many of your, when you were running a team, how many of your people would go and actually sit on site with one of the partners for a day?
1: Well, I pushed them to do it. It didn't, didn't happen often enough. And we really had to push them to get out there and do it. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't nearly frequent enough.
0: Yeah. And was that a valuable was that a valuable exercise
1: for them? Oh, hugely valuable. And sometimes they launched campaigns before doing that, and that was a disaster because they hadn't gone out there and had those conversations.
0: They learned so much when they're like, oh wow, that's what a partner really is dealing with. That's really We get stuck in these little ivory towers, right? These huge corporations, right? Where there's just lots and lots of resources. Then you go step outside for a minute, go sit with your partner, and you'll see how spartan their environment is.
1: Yeah, I think just like channel managers shouldn't be sitting in their office, they need to be out there with partners. The same is true with channel marketing. They need to spend time out there. Peter, a lot of great channel marketing advice there. We've got a few minutes left. I want to just jump over to your channel journey. So quick question for you, and you've you've had an interesting one with Averitech. So first off, where did you grow up? I grew up in rural Washington state. Where is that?
0: So that would be a little tiny town in the foothills of the Cascade Mountain Range, which is like a right. baby mountain range to the Rockies. It was called Sultan, and it was a, a just a tiny
1: little town on a river. Sultan. Boy, I'm from Renton, Washington, which you know is kind of on the outskirts of Seattle, but I'm not sure I even know where Sultan is.
0: Well, if you ever went in skiing at Stevens Pass, you would have driven by it.
1: Ah, okay. So yeah, growing up, I never got to ski Stevens. It was not until I was much older. My... I went to Washington, uh, Snoqualmie Pass area and, and Crystal, Crystal Mountain. Yep. So it's on the other side. All right. Cool. And so you grew up in that area. You moved to Boston fairly recently, about five years ago. So you launched Averitech year 18, 18 and a half years ago. Right. Was that one of the first channel marketing automation tools or tool vendor back then?
0: Uh, yeah. And in fact, so I, I'm a software developer. That's, that's what I learned how to do. And so I, I went to work for, you know, I worked for a number of people. I worked for Microsoft and I worked for Boeing and I worked for a number of other companies. But when I started my own company, I sold into Microsoft. And one of my first clients was a guy named Mike Moore who, you know, Mike, he works for me now. And Mike had this idea. He was in uh, America's partner marketing and he had this idea to build this, this event, this partner event platform for Microsoft to allow partners to create and manage their own events. Microsoft themed events because partners were oftentimes saying, Hey, I want to do an event and I I need you to give me a seminar box and I need you to do, you know, send me some t-shirts and things like that. And so instead of doing this all on a one-off basis, he was like, why don't we create a a platform to do this? And so he hired me to do that. He hired my company to do that. and, And we built that and we collaborated on it. And that was in around 2002, 2003. And ultimately that led to my entry into the channel because I took that platform and I, you know, expanded upon it and, you know, and, uh, I realized
1: that there were more companies than just Microsoft that were struggling with partner marketing. And, and still are today. Many, many companies. Yeah. So you got into a good field. So Mike was your first client and then became an employee and, and co-author of your book.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He's a brilliant guy. I mean, he's a very unique guy. He, he understands the business really well. And he's been in, on the channel partner side. You know, he, he knows what it's like to be on the brand side, but he also has a unique perspective on how tools should work to you know create a better environment for brands and partners and and he's very good at articulating that so kind of an unusual blend of skills so yeah i was happy when
1: i was finally able to hire him yeah well congratulations on that congratulations on the book and all the success that you've had at averatech thank you one last question so when you're not doing channel marketing what do you like to do outside the channel
0: well uh, that's a great question i have bees that I keep and I have an orchard. So we have a, like a little kind of farm here. So we have, we have an orchard with a bunch of fruit trees, have bees, a greenhouse. Uh, and so those, that keeps me pretty busy.
1: Wow. So you're like a gentleman farmer out there.
0: <laughs> That's right. Well, I don't know. I'm not good enough to be a farmer, but I pull weeds and I know how to put stuff in the ground. So And, and the bees are pretty easy. They're, they're pretty nice most of
1: the time. That's a lot of fun. Do you get stung much?
0: No, they're really, I've actually never been, been stung by my own bees. They're very docile. But yeah, we, we end up getting honey and I make, you know, I make lip balm with the wax and stuff like that, you know, just
1: to, uh, just to tinker around with it. Awesome. That sounds like a great hobby. A lot of fun. Well, I'll have to come visit you in Boston and try some of your Averitech honey. I'd love that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Fantastic. Well, Peter, thanks so much. A lot of great advice here. Great to have you on the show and, and look forward to seeing you out there on the channel. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. You're welcome. Cheers. All right, guys, big thanks to Peter Thomas for sharing his insights and tips on channel marketing. Lots of great ideas there that you can use in your channel marketing efforts. I really liked his simple one, just be fun and interesting. Partners don't want to work with a vendor that's boring and stiff and difficult to work with. You can find all five tips for maximizing your channel marketing return on investment in today's show notes on my website at channeljourneys.com backslash cj twenty seven. And if you like today's show, please leave a positive rating and review. You can leave that on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you might be listening to the podcast. Next week, I've got an interesting guest, Jeff Ponce, who's the CEO of DataTel Solutions, a master agent that took a very different approach right from the start when he was launching the company. Jeff targeted MSPs instead of the telco agents, and now he is reaping the reward. So that's going to be a great episode. Also, in just two weeks, July 17th, I've got a webinar I'm doing with Kenneth Fox, the CEO of Channel Mechanics, and we are gonna be talking about incentive models for the changing partner ecosystem. So sign up for that. There'll be a link in my show notes. Hope to see you there. Until then, have an awesome channel journey. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, Please forward it to your channel friends. And be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.